Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, your podcast that delves into the the corners, the little little search, little known corners of horror criticism. I am, as always, one of your mats. I am Matthew Monagle. I am a horror film critic and film critic, and I'm joined by just, the, you know, the other horror critic Matt that I know. I wanted to be more affectionate with that, but like, I don't know. There's only like, there's only two of us worth mentioning, right? I don't, I don't even know if we can say that because we've had Matt Barone on the podcast. Yeah, but he's it. not, he's not a writer yet. He's, he's, we still refer to him as a programmer. So I'm going to say that we're the only two horror film critic Matt's worth knowing at this point in time. And if there are other ones, then we challenge you to the Thunderdome where we will assert our dominance. Or just be our guest on our podcast. No, Thunderdome. Fair. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing okay. You know, it's, uh, it, today it is April 25th, so we are still uh, mid-locking and we are still doing what we can to stay sane. So that means recording a lot of episodes and just drinking things and I don't know. When you say lock-in, it sounds like we're having a fun middle school experience as opposed to like a global pandemic. So I like, I like the spin. That's good marketing spin. This is what I do. You've, you've read my poll quotes. You know I can spin things. That's very true. Um, so you actually, you, usually, you know, a lot of people we bring on the show are people that you've known professionally, um, people especially recently you've gotten to know over the last few years. But today's guest is somebody you've known for a long time. So I want, I'm very excited to hear you do this introduction because this is this is like almost pre-Donato. This is like the old school Donato introduction. So go, please. I want to hear it. I mean, this, I'm bringing on someone to the podcast who I've known probably the longest in, in our industry. Um, so this is starting out as a little, little wee journalist writing for, we got this covered, uh, a site that doesn't have the greatest reputation right now, but Hey, it's where people started and where people uh, became themselves. So yeah, no, this person I'm bringing on the first festival friend, first person I've ever like shared articles with and stuff like that. He now runs the star Wars loose cannon podcast and has transitioned away from the writing a little bit, so you can just hear his voice mainly. But uh, today on the podcast, we have Mr. Al Lowe. Great to be here. Thanks for the uh, lukewarm introduction, I'll call it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just know you for a long time. You're not great at anything. It's just like, yeah, I know him. We're just confusing permanence with success. We shared a bed together at South by Southwest, or should I say a pullout couch? So, I mean, <laughs> these bonds run deep. It's getting weird, guys. Al, normally I, you know, I, I want to actually ask about the Star Wars podcast first because I haven't had an opportunity to listen to it yet. So um, for that crossover horror Star Wars fans out there, and that's actually a pretty big cross section of both fandoms. Um, let me let me what's what is it about? What is your what do you talk about with regards to the Star Wars universe? What's your angle? So we basically uh, we don't want to be another Star Wars podcast that just talks about news and whatnot. So most of our focus is on the intricacies of the Star Wars world and how that stuff kind of works. So one of our most famous episodes is why aren't droids allowed in the cantina? Uh, We've got another episode where we explain the galactic economy. Another one where we talk about the way the science behind hyperspace works. Uh, A lot of things like that. And then we'll touch on some other fun, lesser known things, which on the note of horror, we just did an episode a couple months ago about the galaxy of fear series of books which are like basically goosebumps books set in the star wars universe so you know kind of running the uh the full range of star wars stuff but yeah we're we've been going for about five years and uh touched on just about everything you didn't know that you wanted to know about the star wars world curiosity here because like i'm kind of outside star wars fan i would say like i'm not really in the inner circle i don't read any books and like I know the movie world and I know that kind of world. And to me, it's like, if you've been running for five years at this point, 
honest question. How much more content is there left to mine in that kind of thematic approach to podcasting? Oh, bad question. Well, we, we call ourselves loose cannon for a reason because uh, <laughs> we will go really loosely on, on everything. Uh, I mean, when you go into the books and the video game worlds, like we've had whole episodes based on things from a specific part of one level of a video game. Uh, people wonder and they care about things and it's incredible how how passionate they get about these and then we have some other like sub series that are fun like right now we're doing what if blank made a star wars so we take famous directors and envision what a star wars movie directed by them would be like so the first one of those we did was a wes anderson episode uh i just did a pitch as if christopher nolan was directing a star wars movie that came out last week so there's all sorts of paths we go down is what I'll say. Yeah. And I'm, I don't talk about this much anymore, but I actually cut my teeth. Um, kind of my start as a, as a film lover was with star Wars. I was one of those kids that had like all of the extended and expanded universe books. My first published quote unquote film review was when I was, how old was I? I don't know. It's 14 years old and standing in line for, uh, episode one, my local newspaper interviewed me and a couple of my friends and did it. So like my, my star Wars roots run deep, but they also have sort of faded over the last 10 or 15 years. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that there's still love out there for the expanded universe stuff, because that was always as one of those kids that grew up in that dead spot um, between the late eighties, early nineties, where there were no star Wars movies and no star Wars movies on the horizon. Those books, the Zon books, all the, you know, um, Jedi Academy books, all of that stuff was all we had. That's what we had. Kids today don't understand That's all we had growing up. So it's nice to, it's really nice to hear you guys are kind of delving into that a bit. Yeah. We're just trying to, to fill that small niche and do it the best we can. Well, let's pivot then and talk about kind of, um, a bit more of a focus on horror and your relationship with, with those films here too. Cause you know, today this is uh, the film we're going to talk about is called Munger Road. It's one that you brought to the table for both of us um, that we'd both heard about uh, before and very excited to finally talk about this one on the show. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, as somebody who's written about a, a, a lot of different types of film, you know, what has your relationship with horror been? Do you remember the first couple of horror films that you watched and where you kind of realized like, oh, this genre has something to offer me as a moviegoer? Yeah, well, I remember the first two movies that really genuinely scared me and kept me awake at night. Uh, the first one was E.T. I had nightmares sure. for weeks after seeing E.T. as a little kid. But then the the first one that's more direct of a horror movie was The Ring. Uh, I want to say I was 12, 13 when I saw The Ring, and I basically didn't sleep for a week straight. And that kind of, you know, once I got over the not sleeping, that got me excited about horror movies all the way into college when me and a few other friends and over the course of our four years, there were probably a hundred different people who attended a thing we called Scary Movie Wednesday. So Wednesday of every single week, we would watch a horror movie and you do that for four straight years. You get to more obscure movies than your average 18-year-olds usually watch. Uh, and because of that, that was also when I was starting down the road of film criticism. And my first ever blog was called Thursday's Thoughts on Scary Movie Wednesday, where I would write reviews of the horror movies we watched the night before. And then that kind of transitioned me into other paid film writing work later down the road. But it all kind of started with a love of horror and really 
just enjoying scaring people and seeing people be scared. Monogal, did you ever have a, a scary movie watching club? Because like I, what Al mentioning that brings me back to high school for me too. And I, we didn't do it every week, but my friends did try to do a uh, scary movie Tuesday. Uh, you know, we picked Tuesday as our day for some reason. And oh, I feel that's like that's a terrible day. I know. It, I think that's where we messed it up. We picked Tuesday instead of Wednesday. You know, we would have been way better if it was Wednesday. But no, I mean, it's a fun thing to think about because talking about it, I feel like that was a event type deal with a lot of friend groups growing up uh, for scary movies. And I'm just curious if you had that too, Monocle. Not growing up um, because I kind of transitioned. I, I grew up as a pretty religious kid and sort of when I transitioned into horror was also that time I was transitioning away from religion. And so the group of friends that I had was the sort of person I could be like, hey, after church, you guys want to come over and watch Reanimator? Like that was a weird <laughs> pivot for a lot of those friends. But um, actually when I, I did have a, a Monday was, was my day because it just sort of felt like after the weekend, you know, you needed something to kind of start the week on the right note. I did have uh, one friend of mine and we had some rotating other people that would come in. We watched a lot of different stuff on Mondays um, when I moved back home after college, like in the peak of the recession, good times. And that kind of like that, that was definitely an event for us. It was sort of the thing that we looked forward to all week long and, and planned what we were going to watch. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like I, I, we haven't talked about that on the show before, but I do, I'm curious. I wonder how much, uh, how many different people have that like event weekly horror film watching thing as part of their background too. Yeah. And I mean, for me too, going back to my uh, growing up and, you know, I, I, again, I came into horror late. I say that every episode, it doesn't mean I wasn't watching horror in high school. It was just a much lesser level than my college deep dive. But I guess our scary movie Wednesday's version is we would see whatever horror movie was coming out um, at midnight that like that Thursday night, midnight release when you would go with your friends and you're like, yeah, we're going to stay up late and, you know, be tired for school the next day. Cause we saw Piranha 3d at midnight. Uh, that was our kind of communal bonding over horror. That was the way we did it. Being in a theater and when theaters weren't complete dumpster fires or when they were open, at least, mm. um, that was a really fun experience of getting to see The Conjuring at midnight and your friend is like cowering next to you and you can't watch it and stuff like that. Part of it for us was the joy, though, of the choice of these horror movies. And that was what really opened my eyes because I'm old enough that college was before Netflix, before Prime or any of these streaming services. So we would all go every Wednesday, we'd go get our candy at CVS for the movie and then drive on over to Blockbuster Video to pick out what we were going to watch that week and just browse the aisles. And And I feel like there was a joy to, not to sound too much like an old man, but to seeing all the horror movies in that section that browsing the same thing on Shudder, Netflix just doesn't totally compare with. Yeah, you're hitting on um, something that does come up a lot with our guests, which is that video store, that DVD and VHS experience. What was, um, you know, everybody kind of had like their thing, right? Like the the thing that they would use to to decide what their cold pulls look like, the stuff that they just randomly got off the shelf. So what were sort of the things that a movie could have either in the the description on the back or in the um, the cover art or anything? Like what were the things that drew you when you found yourself pulling random stuff off the shelf? It always was because of X, Y, and Z. What did that look like? That's an interesting question that I haven't really thought too much about. Um, my take on movies, media in general, and then this goes to horror as well, is I I kind of like it all. Uh, I've heard you guys talk on other episodes about, you know, psychological horror versus the horror comedy and stuff. Like, I enjoy all of it. So it really was as simple as just 
all right, I haven't seen this one yet. It looks interesting. Uh, we would usually come away with two or three and then let whoever our rotating guests for the week were. Um, it started actually as a way to spend time with a girl who was, I was into my freshman year who was also of scared of the ring. So we put together this whole big event just for me to hang out with this one girl that I couldn't figure out how to ask out otherwise. Uh, but then after me and her came and went, there was other people we'd bring into the mix and we would just grab whatever looked good. There was, uh, I, I know that's not the most interesting answer, but just we didn't discriminate. Yeah, no, I, that's, I mean, that is a com- more common answer than you think though. Uh, certain people have their, I will go to the titles. I go to the covers. I think for me, it's the titles. Honestly, the, the more ridiculous a title you can throw at me, the, the more I'm going to watch it. I mean, I just watched a movie called Ouija Geist, which doesn't even feature an Ouija Geist. That but you got I mean, some buzz for that, man. There were people that, that don't normally interact with you that were like, what is this movie? Well, of course, because it's called a Ouija Geist. And what the fuck is an Ouija Geist? And is that even pronounced correctly? Because it's spelled like Ouija uh, Geist. I don't know. There's a lot of things that I, I got rattling around my head right now. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious, too, about that, that jump that you talked about, Al, because, you know, talking about sort of writing and starting your own Thursday blog about the thoughts that came from your horror movie Wednesdays. What, uh, like, where did you find yourself gravitating as a writer? What were the things about the movies that you started to dive into? Was it like special effects or story elements? Like where, where did horror become something that you needed to critically dive into a bit? What I really enjoyed about writing about horror was, and it sounds like both of you share this too, based on this podcast, was exposing people to something they hadn't seen before, but they might love. Because uh, with horror more than any other genre, I think there's a lot of obscure movies that might be someone's favorite, but they've just never heard of it. Um, I don't I don't know that it's the same percentages in comedy or action movies or anything like that, where horror, there's just so many unknown movies that are so good. And so what I really enjoyed was exposing people to movies. And, and I'm a big thing. If you go on my Rotten Tomatoes profile as a critic, I have way more positive reviews than negative because I find things to like about every movie. Um, So that was kind of the motivation for pulling me in. But then in terms of the specific stuff, I'm I'm a story guy. Uh, I don't really care that much about special effects or the actual technical parts of it. It's just if there's a good fascinating story that'll give me a lot of leeway in terms of everything else there are movies i love just because they have an interesting premise and it's not even fleshed out that well but the fact that the premise was good that'll hook me it's so funny you mention uh going on your rotten tomatoes and seeing all those positive takes because i can i can still remember writing uh reviews that we got this covered at the same time as you and you know we go back and forth and talk about horror and stuff like that and i think there was a time where you kind of asked me like not, maybe not even ask me, but you're like, I don't know if I'm cut out to be like an actual critic. Cause I kind of find the good in everything. Cause like you were yelling at me for being like too mean to a movie or something. And I'm like, yeah, but you like, it's the fun, it, not even, it's not fun. Sorry. But like, it's the curious question of when you're critiquing something and if you can separate, okay, this is an indie movie and they're trying. So like, I should give them the benefit of the doubt versus like, nope, this is a movie. I need to be completely into the fact that I have to give this a critique based on what it is. Um, and it, it, it is, you know, it's funny to hear back and think back those memories of you giving me shit for being too mean to movies. Yeah, I and it's not even for me that I'm giving indie movies more of a benefit of a doubt. I just genuinely like most things I watch. I think uh, 
not really as much horror, but like uh, Paycheck, the is that a Ben Affleck movie? That's a great yeah. premise. I love it. I don't care that it doesn't live up to the premise. Uh, in Time, the Justin Timberlake movie, incredible. Time is money. It's great. I. Uh, it doesn't matter how it actually turned out. It's just a cool idea. Some might say it's timeless. Yeah, it's. I, I feel your pain though there because as Donato very much so knows, I sort of have a reputation for being the guy that will watch anything in like the 80 to $100 million range and be like, it was fine because I really firmly believe that the vast majority of movies that are released are fine. And when we get into this like pissing contest about movies and whether or not they're good, like, listen, if they opened in 3,000 theaters across the country, they're, odds are they're fine more often than not. Like that has been workshopped and tested and focus group to the point where like it, you know, it can't really be that bad anymore. Um, so, and I, that, that is a, a blanket generality, but I definitely, I feel your pain. Like I think a, I think I, that there is usually at least one good thing to pull from every film, but at the same time, like most movies are just fine. And it's a hard thing as a writer to be like, how do I differentiate between this movie, which is mostly fine. And this other movie, which is sort of fine. <laughs> I hate th- those are the reviews I hate the most to be completely honest with you. Yeah. When you just have that middling mediocre, like, all right, this movie did nothing for me, but it's not egregiously bad and not tremendously amazing. So you have to find that middle ground of like, all right, how do I meet my word count of 650 words, basically saying this is fine over and over again. And it's like two hours later and you've got half, half a review done. And you're like, I've exhausted every way to, to, to convey that message. That just means more puns for you, right? A hundred percent. That's when I just start having fun, man. Well, last question before we start talking about Munger Road then, Al, you know, as somebody who has sort of specialized now, somebody who I think focuses a bit more on one franchise, one IP within the broader film community, what do you feel like your relationship to horror is now? Do you feel like it's still as as deep and rich as it was when you uh, were doing those horror movie Wednesdays, when you were kind of writing about that a little bit more? Or do you think your relationship to the genre has changed? Well, it's certainly not as deep as it was then, and this is more of a sad aging thing, just because I'll never again have that same community as living with your best friends and everyone being free on a Wednesday night to come over and watch a movie every single week. Um, so, so it wasn't even so much the movies themselves as the community around that that can just never be recreated, I feel like, that sort of event. I mean, all those people have kids now, and lives outside of just getting together on a Wednesday night to eat candy and watch horror movies. And then when I stopped, so I've been not actively working as a film critic for probably four years now. And there was a period there where I was doing the grind of watching 300 movies a year and whatever. So I kind of took a a big gap between seeing things. Um, But now that I've had a little space in the last year, year and a half, I've been able to watch movies just purely for pleasure, which is, is a great feeling again for me. So, so it's fun to just be entertained and not have to think all that critically about things from time to time and just be like, instead of writing formal reviews all the time, just, Hey, I really like this. I'm going to text that group text of all the people I hung out with in college and be like, Hey, if you guys have time away from your 17 kids. Check out this movie. Wait, you mean there's a world outside making your passion and pleasure into more work? There is that world. No, I'm doing that in other realms of my life to make my money, <laughs> just just not movies. 
Well, that feels like a perfect transition point then um, for us to talk about this movie because we're not going to let you just have fun with it. We're going to make <laughs> you be critical. So sorry about that. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Munger Road. Um, and I think it's going to be a good discussion. I think this one is, is going to be a deceptively deep movie for us to talk about. So Three, stick around. So this week's movie is Munger Road. It is a 2011 feature, um, actually probably barely an, an indie film, almost a micro-budget film, that recaptures a uh, an Illinois kind of urban legend about what happens on Munger Road where you push your car onto the tracks, you put the car in neutral, and ghost children, children who were killed by a train accident killed on a bus years ago, um, push your car off the railroad tracks to save you. It's one of those urban legends that actually pops up in a couple of different places. Donato was talking about on the podcast uh, before we started recording that there are similar things in the areas of New Jersey when he grew up. But this is very much so an Illinois story. And the filmmaker, Nicholas Smith, is an Illinois resident. Uh, he went to school in Illinois and uh, cast a lot of local faces and local places in order to make this film. This particular movie is about a group of four teenagers who go out one night to record themselves doing the same exercise that countless teenagers have done before. They drive to Munger Road. They try and capture evidence, photographic evidence, that the ghosts are moving their car, their car off the railroad tracks. And this just happens to be at the same time that a notorious serial killer, somebody who years and years and years ago killed five, um, five young men and one woman as part of an awful killing spree, has escaped from prison and is making his way back to this community. So the story follows these four teenagers, who are lost a little bit in the woods, follows two police officers that are hunting down the serial killer, and their stories over the course of the film intersect in uh, very interesting ways, in ways that I wasn't expecting at all. So that's Munger Road. Al, you're up first. What made this the movie that you were like, this is what I have to talk about on the podcast? Well, so I grew up about 20 minutes from the Munger Road. So this was a thing I did in high school going to Munger Road, putting my car in neutral, putting baby powder on the bumper, was living away from the area by the time the movie came out, but it was still one I was excited about, so I saw it as soon as it was out on DVD. And aside from the the local ties and the fact that I'm very familiar with St. Charles and Munger Road and all that, uh, I one concept I just love in horror movies is the very specific subgenre of kids doing something that they think is an urban legend, but then stuff actually happens, whether it relates to that urban legend or to other things that intersect, like in this movie. I'm just fascinated by those stories. So again, back to what I was talking about earlier with, I love a good premise and I'll be along for the ride. If I'm on board with the premise, this is one of those. It was 
hitting me right where I want my movies to hit. Yeah, and I think I was very drawn in by the urban legend angle as well, because as Matt just said, I was maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes in, and I didn't know this is this one was specifically based on Illinois uh, road and stuff like that. So I'm watching it going like, wait, the story about putting your car in neutral, having it roll upwards, even though, you know, it's a gravitational trick. And that was a road that I grew up about 10 minutes from in New Jersey. And it was uh, Ewing Ave around a town called Franklin Lakes. Same thing. High school. You just got your license. You got nothing to do on a Friday night. So you and your friends pack a car and go uh, to see if I think ours was a woman that died at the uh, turnoff ramp and she pushes you back up. And then we also had Clinton Road, which was tur- just recently turned into a film that stars Ice-T. Don't mm. know why, but apparently Ice-T is involved in the film about a road that is close to my Jersey uh, hometown where you would go on and turn your lights off and you would see things. Or if you threw a coin in a river, it would come back out. So I, I think that personal connection makes a film like this a little bit more interesting. And it makes it a little bit like we've lived those scenarios as you just alluded to we've done that dumb shit before we we've put our cars in neutral and you know put getting an accident at risk just to see if someone will push us back up so i think that does you know it adds a little bit uh, of in terms of depth to the horror community and you know mysticism and folklore yeah and i'm, I'm curious al somebody who grew up in this region as you were watching this movie you know a lot of times when we watch movies that were local, we get to be like, oh, I know that place. I know that place. doesn't happen a lot for me because I grew up in Southeast Alaska. Not a lot of movies set there. <laughs> but watching this, you know, did you get the that sense that this was something that was made for and, and, and by locals? Oh, definitely. There's, there's a lot of uh, shots that are just meant to show St. Charles off. And they talk about, oh, he was in prison in Rockford and DeKalb and all these places that they're just throwing in for the sake of part of its authenticity, but I think part of it is also to appeal to people from the area. Now, at the same time, they they struggle at times with getting certain aspects of that right. So I'm sure to you guys watching it, it seems like St. Charles is a very small town. Uh, it's a town of about 50,000, surrounded by a bunch of other towns of 50,000. There are two high schools in St. Charles. So I don't think there's the police chief knowing every single high schooler by first name in the area, things like that, where they try and pass it off as a little smaller of a town than it is. But uh, on the whole, yeah, it uh, really appeases to that local pride. This movie did really, really tax my knowledge of, of Chicago and, and Illinois and the surrounding areas, which I, apparently as I was watching this, I was like, the only things I know about Illinois are things I've learned from Sufjan Stevenson's. So I was like, this is, <laughs> this is really coming in handy right now because I recognize some of the cities that they're referencing. Yeah, if there was a Decatur run or something like that. So basically, St. Charles is 35 miles west of downtown Chicago. Uh, it is then probably a 10 to 15 minute drive to Munger Road, which is on the edge of Bartlett. And then Batavia is two towns south of St. Charles. And that was where I grew up. I like how you have that memorized, like you've taken that route too many times. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that also falls into part of it. I don't think this is delving into the spoilers yet, but when the kids were talking about, oh, the we're stuck out here, how do we get to any civilization? Munger Road's kind of in a neighborhood. It's not very far from, you know, you're not out in the middle of nowhere like they make it seem, but it's a much better story if it is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so that was actually, that leads into a question I did want to ask uh, about the film and the way you guys read it. Um, I don't know if my reading was a little off, but when they do get stuck and, you know, we'll, we'll get to the point where 
the kids in question and they want to go to Munger Road and they want to prove that there's paranormal activity. So they do the ritual and all of a sudden their car dies. So at that point, the car dies and these kids are stuck in the quote unquote middle of nowhere. They kind of like, they don't even try to leave the car and go to any surrounding civilization. They just commit to the fact that they are stuck. And they, like you just said, Al, they make it seem like there is nothing in the vicinity. Like they are like they're forest locked basically. And if they leave, they'll never be found again. And is, okay, do their phones go out? Is that something that I picked up on correctly where like they can't get messages or service and stuff like that? Like, is that, was that supposed to be like a paranormal dead zone thing? So I, I don't know. Are we ready to potentially discuss part of the ending yet? Or is it too early for that? Cause I think what your question does relate to the ending. Well, I, let me put it this way. Um, and then we'll dive into the ending a bit. So I think one of the things that Munger road does that's sort of interesting, um, that I haven't really seen before is we've seen ghost movies and we've seen slasher films. And one of the ideas that Nicholas Smith has, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference an interview that he did at the time that this was out. You know, he was doing a lot of interviews with local press. Uh, every, of course, every local newspaper in Illinois and every local news station was really excited that there was this film being made about this local legend. So they were all talking to him. And at one point, one of the things that he said, which was very in theme with a lot of conversations we've had on this podcast, is that this movie came out in 2011. He felt that the last 10 years of the horror genre had been very torture heavy. He used the torture porn word, but the way he talked about it is just that it was it was only showcasing one side of the horror genre. And so he was interested in doing something that was a bit of a departure from that. Um, and I think what that means is that if you go in thinking that this is, I mean, if you're reading the log line and you see that two police officers are searching for a killer the same night that four teenagers go missing, you might think that this is uh, more of your traditional slasher, that this is four kids in the woods getting chased by somebody. It's very much so not. It is, in a lot of ways, a ghost story with slasher elements. And if you don't want to learn anything more about it, that's a good place to hit pause and go watch this movie on Hoopla, which is where it's available. Um, but if you're ready, I think, yeah, now, Al, I think you should talk a little bit about the, the way that those two ideas and concepts kind of uh, intermingle a bit in the execution. Yeah, so with the the ending and the ultimate reveal that the killer that has been hunted down, his death was called in at 11.15 p.m. the night before. The kids, their phones stop working and are stuck at 11.14 so that's what it sounds like is the time the guy was hit by the truck. And so I, I think it being a paranormal dead zone, it's not just the place of Munger Road, but I think the filmmaker's trying to make that in relation to the guy being killed and then becoming this paranormal entity. All that happens at 11.14 p.m. And that's why the phones, the watch, the car, everything is stuck, say, at 11.14 p.m. for hours and hours. Yeah, it it, draw, it draws me back to a film called Dead End, which I think was early 2000s. And it plays with, it's a Christmas horror film starring Ray Wise and Lynn Shea. And they're parents who are taking their kids to grandma's house. And they get stuck on this time loop road, basically. So same thing, middle of nowhere, isolated. And they can't get off this road. And they're pursued by this, you know, supernatural being the whole time. And, and there's a lot of fun parallels that I was drawing between those. Um, Dead End is a lot funnier and a lot more comical uh, versus this obviously takes the slasher route. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that was, I was trying to contextualize, you know, is this a straight slasher or is this a supernatural slasher? Uh, so those like questions kind of were in my mind the whole time, the way they played it. And especially the way they integrate the cops 
um, as the case is unfolding, we'll say. So you have the kids in the road, then you have the cops in St. Charles, they're back in the town trying to locate the children. And I, you know, I think that was a good way to play the angle because you would go back and forth and it kind of sounded like the cops were even chasing a different case at times or like the case had happened already and they were just going to discover a bunch of bodies. So it, it keeps you in the dark. And I think that's a really good thing about the film. It, it, the one thing it does get right is it keeps you in a suspenseful place where you really don't know what's happening the whole time. Yeah, there's definitely, there's a sense throughout, I think, um, that the filmmakers really understand what they can, because um, the budget of this film, uh, I believe is it was about $200,000, which is absolutely nothing for the, the type of film that this wants to be. And for certainly the, the, how good this movie looks, how much effort and how much care they put into choosing their locations, um, probably could have afforded a few more lights. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I, the, the thing is that so much of this movie seems designed around that idea that you ask yourself when you're a first time filmmaker or somebody that's just starting out is like, what can we afford to do? Right? Like that's, that should be the first question. A lot of indie filmmakers ask themselves is what can we afford to do well? And to the credit of this movie, because it takes on sort of those spiritual ghost tones for a lot of it, a lot of what we would usually see on screen in a slasher is moved to the, to the off screen stuff. We hear a lot of things happen. To characters we hear a lot of things that are going on in the periphery in the background and i think that that makes it that both makes this a better movie for it because it doesn't try and show these grandiose kill scenes that it doesn't it just doesn't have the the chutzpah to pull off but it what it also does is it creates sort of this more ethereal feeling for the movie that that makes it a little more difficult to categorize yeah no i, I the categorization is a big thing i would say um I, I don't know if it always works is where I'm trying to get with it because, well, let's just start with the darkness. You, you, you mentioned the darkness before Matt. And I think that's something we should talk about right now because this is a very dark film. This is something that you're not meant to always see. This is not something that you're always meant to be able to comprehend because what we cannot see is often scarier to us than what we can. I mean, the unknown is what's, what's the most horrifying thing we can think of because that brings up death and that brings up things that we don't have answers for. So to kind of level that against a movie that transitions between found footage and regular narrative and stuff of that nature, I would have liked to have had a little more visibility. I would say <laughs> I will, I will say this. There is no better evidence that I am desperately in need of upgrading my television than watching this movie because the color contrast on my TV was just not up to watch Munger Road. It just was like there were entire scenes where it just gave up and was like, there's probably visuals, but we it just doesn't matter. Okay, I'm glad that I wasn't the only one because I was struggling at points. Yeah, the same thing for mine. There were certain scenes where I'm like, I don't know if this is meant to be intentionally blacked out or if I just can't, my TV can't handle the fact that like, what, there's color comprehension going on here? I, I think it was a mix of both. And I do think a little more scene would be good. There, I think there's some shots that are super effective with the way they do it. Like, I think it's a really cool, scary shot. The one part where uh, one of the kids lays the camera down on the ground, he's checking out the car, and then you see the camera get picked up and walk over to him. Like, I, I think that's a really cool found footage, classic shot that uh, got my heart thumping a couple times. But in smaller doses those are super effective and it is nice to see someone actually get hit over the head okay where's the gore? Yeah, I, we got the, we got to get a little bit of gore man 
Yeah, there was no gore budget here. There was zero gore budget. And as Matt, you said, you know, the budget itself was minuscule. I mean, they were lucky enough to get Bruce Davidson, the star, as well as the little shit kid from Jurassic Park 3 in a now older role. <laughs> but um, yeah, I want to read uh, Roger Ebert's quote because he is the only, you know, usually at the end we talk about ratings and things of that nature. But Mr. Ebert is the only positive review on this film, which I'm very surprised to see. Um, he's the only fresh tomato out of four. And his reasoning is Munger Road does an efficient, skillful job of audience manipulation using the techniques of darkness and vulnerability. And the truth that horror not seen is almost scarier than the one you can see. So I, that's you know exactly what we're talking about. That seems to be the exact reason why Roger Ebert gave this three out of four stars and went on to try, you know, champion Munger Road. Yeah, and I I agree with him actually. For a lot of this movie, I, as I was kind of like jotting down my notes as I went along, I think that the way that the way that they pivot or position a lot of the violence off screen actually works. Uh, part of that is just because you know it, this this very much so makes it a monocle movie and not a Donato movie because they're not showing stuff, they're hinting at stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm here for that. Don't show me anything, just let me feel it. But there's a few scenes, like particularly the early scene where the two police officers are investigating um, the killer's childhood home, where they they do this really interesting job of sort of following this character through the building. And then at the end of the sequence, he gets hit in the head and he collapses. The camera stays with him. And then you hear like the chase and the pursuing gunfight that happens outside of the house. And I don't think that the, I don't think that doing it that way, you lose anything than if you were to follow it and have like a bigger and more grandiose scale. I like the focus on the characters. I like that so much of this movie trusts its actors, not an incredibly robust or impressive cast. These are actors that are good actors, but were not people in 2011 that you would be like, oh, I can't believe they got X, Y, and Z. But the movie understands that it is punching above its weight when it comes to the ability of its cast. And so it lets them do a lot more heavy lifting than I think an indie horror film like this would normally be comfortable with. So here's another question stemming from the ambiguity, I guess we'll say, of the narrative and the ambiguity of selling who the killer is. It, is are we supposed to believe that Corey, the uh, main male protagonist, is actually the killer the whole time? The guy who they use as the red herring, who is a main character who disappears for three hours within the film's universe time and comes back later at random moments and then disappears again. Are, are we supposed to believe that he is the killer? There's certainly clues that would lead towards that, and that is one conclusion you could draw. I think there's also a safe conclusion that could be drawn that the police chief or whoever the main, uh, the Bruce Davidson is, could be the killer based on him continuing to disappear. There's a lot of ambiguity with that, and that is when I first saw this movie, the stuff that, I didn't so much like about it is the lack of a, are we ready to talk about the lack of an ending? Um, Let's talk about the lack of an ending. Yeah. So the the biggest spoiler alert on the board. Yeah. All of that, it, uh, you know, I think just leaving the to be continued off would have been a better move. But in, in the years since I first saw this thinking about it, I really came to the conclusion that I like to believe a lot of life is about the journey more so than the destination. So for me, it's not fair to totally base a movie on not loving the last two minutes. So here is where I might combat you and say that, number one, you brought us a movie that ends with to be fucking continued. (laughs) Uh, Number two, while life may be about the journey, 
movies surely have a goddamn structure and that's a beginning and an end. And one of the things that really gets me, especially um, in franchise filmmaking and looking at these studios who, you know, they might get a property and they're not thinking about making just one movie. They're thinking about making three or four movies. And what that does, it, it, it dilutes the first product. You're already thinking three films into a future that might not exist when what a filmmaker should be doing is focusing on one film, selling a story start to finish. And if that story is good enough to necessitate a sequel, then by all means. But you have to deliver on that first movie. And I I don't think that Munger Road gets there 100%. I think there's, there's a conclusion missing. There's one extra 15 minutes that could have wrapped so much up, brought this uh, entire story narrative full circle. And when you throw that to be continued on to be like, yeah, you love that movie, didn't you? Or whatever we just showed you. Guess what? We're going to bring you more. It's it's kind of egotistical. Yeah. I mean, I remember my first time watching it. There's about 10 minutes to go. In, and I mean, the movie's really heating up at that point. There, There's a lot of tension going on. Uh, and with 10 minutes to go, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is only an hour and a half movie. How are they going to wrap this up by the ending? And they don't so that 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 was what answered that question but when i first saw it i didn't like that in the subsequent years and on a couple rewatches i'm i'm more okay with it because i think not every story has a clean clean crisp conclusion yeah i'm i'm actually going to side with Al a little bit on this one because I think the same thing happened to me. Um, when I watch movies, I don't I don't have my phone in earshot, but I do have a dog, and sometimes she scratches at the door. So I think I was about 10 to 15 minutes away from the end of the film when I paused it really quick to get up and let her outside, and then I just I, I stared at the little the little ticker, um, and I was like, that that can't be right. Like we're just <laughs> like there is no way that they're going to resolve this, um, and it might have even been closer. It might have been actually in in that final scene where they show up and they save Joe. And then they're talking about like the police officers and everybody showed up. I was like, this is they're 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 not going to wrap this up in any way. That's going to be even remotely salvageable for me. So kind of going into that, I sort of had a sense that they were, they were preparing to do something a little bit differently, but I do, I do wonder too, if this is just sort of a function of this being a little before the period when it became really common to build to a future with a short Obviously, that's something people have done since the beginnings of film. The short to feature pipeline has been pretty ubiquitous for a lot of filmmakers. But I think now we really expect horror filmmakers to come up with a really awesome five to 10 minute concept, put it on YouTube, put it on Vimeo, have it play as part of short programming at the you know hundreds of horror film festivals that have popped up over the last 10 years, and then use that as a springboard into getting a bigger feature. This to me feels like maybe one of uh, just a pre-transition movie where the best approach this, that the uh, that the filmmakers might have thought, the best approach that Nicholas Smith might have had was to make a feature in order to make a second feature, not to make a short, to make a feature. And I kind of wonder if he were to do the same thing, same age, same crew, same talents in 2020 versus 2010, if his approach would be, all right, let's do 10 minutes of just like amazing stuff and then let's see if we can get a studio to bite on a feature version of this based on the short it almost feels like we're watching somebody who was doing taking an approach to making movies that is already a bit out of date in one of the interviews i did read with the director that that's kind of what was going on the movie he wrote first is what would be the the sequel to this i believe it's more of a story that 
I would guess delves more into the paranormal side of it, but they didn't quite have the money to do that properly. So they made this sort of prequel and then they're looking for, I mean, just a million dollars to do the, the version he originally thought of, which I mean, shoot, you guys got a million dollars just laying around, right? Like we could get this movie made, but, uh, but it hasn't happened in that time. Um, now that doesn't, the context doesn't change at all the experience of watching Munger Road as it exists. But I think what you thought he was doing is spot on based on what I've read. Yeah. And he actually, I think I read that interview too. He talked about the fact that this was the Munger Road that exists now was actually 10 pages of his original script. And that um, this was basically like the cold open was the teenagers on the road for the other movie. And when he realized he didn't have the budget to make that movie, he took those 10 pages and turned it into a feature in and of itself. So I, I remember that now that you brought that up. Thank you. But I mean, playing right off of that, you know, we haven't got that sequel since. And I mean, we haven't got that sequel since because the original Munger Road didn't make enough money for its investors to even necessitate a sequel, you know. And is that because you have, you know, not adjusted what you were going to bring to the table? Well, no, you did adjust it, but like you're not sacrificing something, but you are making a lesser product. You're not making the product that you wanted to do originally and like you're almost compromising the project that you wanted to get to by delivering something just for the sake of delivering something and hoping it'll lead to what you want to do. I don't know. I just, I feel like if there is a better manga road and there is a better sequel than the prequel that they hoped would deliver said sequel, I just think you keep pushing that. You You don't sacrifice. In the grand scheme of things for me, I think if you give me the choice between somebody who makes manga road, a film that has, a few really interesting ideas and is willing to do something a bit different than what we've seen before, or one of the countless movies that that you usually end up watching and reviewing Donato, something where people are just indulging the audience's most base instincts in the hope that that proves that they belong in the conversation. I, I like to see people do something that it, you know, my, one of my rallying cries when it comes to movies is I feel like in order to make a good movie, you have to risk making a bad one. Um, which is basically to me means that you have to make some choices that people are going to disagree with. And I feel like Munger Road is a good example of that. Like it doesn't all entirely work for me, but they made decisions that turned people off because they thought that that would make for a better movie, including the big ending thing. And I find that way more fascinating than, you know, whatever asylum knockoff or ripoff of what's currently trending in the horror genre happens to be like, yeah, maybe those have a technical proficiency that this movie lacks. Maybe those have filmmakers that understand, you know, the scare sections of horror that this movie doesn't have in the same way, but there's something to this film that positions it above any, a lot of other $200,000 independent new features you're going to find from first time filmmakers. Yeah. And sorry, I didn't mean to make the Munger road that would have been a million dollars for 200. I I just meant more in the sense like, just keep pushing that million dollar version. And if you can get that made, get that made because I agree with you. Those movies that I do end up watching are people that go, well, fuck it. I can make this movie for 200,000. I don't need the million. I can cut corners and do all this stuff. And no, no, you fucking can't. I mean, you just really can't again, a Ouija guys and shit like that. I, I devour this stuff and it tastes terrible. And I would love to see the vision that I really think we could have gotten in a Munger road that was a million dollars and tells the whole paranormal arc and really gives you what you want versus, I don't know, I'm going to call it like the cut rate version of, all right, here's, here's a tease of what you might expect. Hey, everyone like it and give us your money so we can make the second one. I, I just, it's just such a, 
it's a hard avenue to go and it's a hard avenue to succeed on. And I can't help but feel a little disappointed knowing there's a more interesting Munger road out there. And not to say that this one isn't interesting, not to say that it does, you know, it does things right. I mean, Roger Ebert, three out of four, like obviously this is a successful horror film in the eyes of many. I if just Ro- get disappointed. If Roger Ebert reviews your film, period, you've done something right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that context soon when we get to the, like, why is it still, you know, you know what we do at the end of these podcasts, but, I um, know what we do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting conundrum to be in, I guess I would say, and we have to rate what we're given, but also at the same time, my heart is heavy knowing what we could have had. Well, Al, let me ask you, because you've talked a bit about how your relationship with this has changed over the years. I can't believe for a second that Donato and I are the first people that you've shown this movie to. How does this go over with some of the other friends and family members you have where you sit them down and you're like, you got to try Munger Road. You know, what, what does it feel like for a lot of folks to sit down and see that ending? So I actually, I haven't watched it in person with anyone else, um, but in other people, especially high school friends or family who are from the area and have also watched it, it's been kind of the same conclusion. Uh, the ending disappointing. Now, the first time I saw this movie, I was angry about the ending or lack thereof. And I remember being more upset than say my parents who watched it as well or uh, other friends. But I think that was just in an era where I cared more about things. Um, Now that um, I care a little less about life and everything involved with it, uh, the reaction yeah yeah the reaction i have is on par with most people and i mean i think everything you guys have said both positive and negative about the ending is is fair but i i think in watching it this time it didn't feel as unresolved as i remembered it being is that personal context though? Is it, I mean, is that just your familiarity with the story and you being able to fill in, uh, you know, more in tune and not even plot points, I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if you can be influenced by what you in real life have gone through and know about Munger road. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I don't think that's it. I think a lot of the reason we all bristled on various levels to this is the fact those three words are up there at the end, the to be continued. I think if you remove the to be continued and you just left the movie as, all right, this girl was saved from whatever was going on because the paranormal entity realized she was pregnant and couldn't kill her, which I'm pretty sure is what was going on there. Uh, Realized she was pregnant, doesn't kill her, but it killed all her friends. She's saved. They're never going to find the body of her friends. We're not certain who the killer was, but... That's just kind of how a lot of horror movies end. If it just ended there with the girl with the blanket around her in the back of the ambulance and they're like, you got to tell us what really happened last night. And then it goes to black. I don't think it would feel as unresolved as putting the to be continued on the screen. Yeah, because the actual last shot, is it not the camcorder? We have the deputy looking at the camcorder and then it cuts to to be continued, suggesting that there is more evidence on this camcorder that we have not seen yet. So I, and that's where it brings back, you know, is it the male protagonist? Is it that Corey character? Right. If it was just him looking at the camcorder and it's like, oh shit, he saw the, the man behind them in the car. Um, 
which I guess that would be the thing that goes against it being Corey is because we see all four of them in the car and see the man in the background. So there is assumed to be some paranormal aspect. And I think the movie could just end with that End with we've saved this girl. They're out looking for the bodies. They're probably not going to find them. The deputy's looking at the camera and, Oh, this is scary. Fade to black. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, that's I a good point. I, I I am curious how my reaction would have maybe wavered had it not been to be continued. Because, I mean, how many horror movies today, you know, an A24 horror movie or one of these, you know, more ethereal, big thinking horror movies. And just like you just said, they end with the ambiguous. They end not giving you an ending because they want you to think, all right, what the hell happens next? Oh, my God, this is crazy. Well, it's like From Dust Till Dawn, which is one of my favorite endings of all time. And this is definitely the first time Munger Road has been compared to From Dust Till Dawn. But the movie ends in a sense of, oh, some people died, some people fought and survived. And we think we know what was going on, but then it pans out and you see that there's thousands of semi-trucks in a in a gulch. So what more is going to happen? Yeah, but here's again, here's where I will say that uh, From Dust Till Dawn, amazing movie i one of my favorite vampire flicks and it's, it, it's a full donato movie but Very it gives so. you a full narrative before it gets to that point you get a full front to back storytelling experience within the titty twister and then it expands the greater world that's how you do it right that's how you are able to deliver the story you're trying to tell give everyone that vampire gore and craziness in this specific case of from dust till dawn and then tease where a sequel could go. That's how you do it. You've given us the right experience and you've, you've shown what potential still exists where crazily enough, comparing it to Munger road, you've given us a bite of the story. You've given us a little bit where you don't even tie up the loose ends that exist in your first movie. Yeah, the- there are, there are a lot of like, I, I think, I think the benefit and sort of the double-edged sword here, right? Like the good thing about Munger road is that it, isn't willing to go into either the ghost story or the slasher tropes. It's trying to carve out its own idea of what a horror film can and should be and what a, you know, a monster can look like in one of these movies. But the bad thing is by taking that more ambitious approach, there are a lot of pieces that don't, that aren't fully connected. There are, we don't quite understand the mythology uh, of what they're creating and how those pieces fit together a little bit. And I, again, I, I think I side with Al. I think if, you know, I'm fine with the ending pretty much as is, even with the to be continued, but I think if the to be continued wasn't there, it would just sort of feel like an interesting cliffhanger, a film that asked a lot of questions and didn't quite answer all the ones that we wanted to. Um, but to me, it's, you know, that, that's, that's sort of it. Like what intrigues me the most about Munger Road, the, the ideas that it has, the concepts it's willing to play with and the ways it's willing to depart from other horror films are also the things that limits its ceiling because it's not going to be able to do those things in a satisfying way. It just doesn't have the budget. It just doesn't have the energy it needs in order to resolve those in a big, you know, culmination of everything that's going on. So, and to me, though, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. I'm like, if you ask good questions and don't provide the answers, I'd rather that than you provide shitty answers to questions I don't care about. Yeah, can I just say how funny it is that you predicted exactly how this conversation would go at the beginning when you said this is totally going to be like, I am now showing myself as the overcritical, maybe like, eh, fuck this kind of guy. And Al and you are just like completely like, no, there's a story here. There's something good that we can we can find the good in all this. So I, I am actually laughing by myself because you predicted this exactly. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this, because this is what I always come back to with movies. It was, what, 86 minutes? Yeah. 
do you regret spending 86 minutes watching it? Are you glad that you have that in your head now that you have new experiences and new things you've seen on a screen? I will say this. I never regret watching a movie. I would never say that I regret watching a movie. I just maybe might deeply dislike and be feel displeased, but no, you're right. I mean, I, I didn't have the same adverse reaction to Munger road as I do watching my apocalypses, my cute little buggers, my, the bottom of the barrel. That's not Munger road. There is competency here. And it is a shame that the movie's director and writer hasn't done anything else. Like this is only his, his only shot really. So do I feel those things? Yes. Do I still have a lot of issues, I'll say, with Munger Road? And, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing it in as positive a light as you guys. I'm going to be on the more negative side of Munger Road. That, that's correct. I will add that, that it, the revealing part of this conversation to me is how we're anchoring it. Some films you talk about, like if, if you think of films as being on the general spectrum of bad to good, some films you talk about how much better they are than bad. And some films you talk about how, how close or their proximity to being good. And that to me speaks to this is that, you know, we're not talking about this as how much better than it, than it is than a bad movie. Even when Donato's being critical, we're talking about where it failed to be a good one. And that tells me that this movie did enough for us to switch gears in our head and say, you know, we're going to compare this to really good horror movies and see where it failed. We're not going to compare this to really shitty horror movies and be like, well, at least it's better than that. I mean, one thing before we get to our, you know, wrap up and stuff like that, I just want to go on another tangent uh, really quickly. The characters, the way they're written, my God, I hated most of the uh, children. <laughs> I have to admit, the teenagers, uh, it, it basically is like chivalry is dead, the movie, and they work so hard to make those guys so kind of bro-y in certain aspects of randomly calling girlfriends bitches and stuff like that. It, w- it was hard He didn't me. call her a bitch. He right. said, sorry, <laughs> acting like a bitch. Sorry. To say that their girlfriends were acting like a bitch um yeah didn't didn't really work for me on the character development side either so i don't know if you guys had the same feeling because that also might be influencing my overall opinion well yeah there's there's all sorts of weird character decisions uh none of those kids are likable which i think is true but that's also to compare it to something else that it's never been compared to before that's part of why i don't enjoy stranger things um is i didn't think any of those kids were likable much younger, obviously, and likable in different senses, but it's hard to get on board when the main group of characters you're supposed to like, you don't. And that was where I thought the two cops really helped this movie is they were both likable enough characters that we kept cutting to them and seeing that, hey, these are good guys and they're trying to help and do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, since you brought it up, the one actually the the kids were mostly fine. Like they're better than a lot of teenagers in horror films. So I was like, that's okay. But the one thing that actually did great on my nerves is like there's three times in this movie when Bruce Davison's character, who is a police chief that was on the force when the serial killer rampaged this Chicago suburbs years and years and years ago, you know, who is on the hunt for a serial killer and who has proprietary knowledge of how this guy potentially could come back and kill again. He, he keeps telling his deputy, are you scared? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'd be scared too. <laughs> like, why are you asking your deputy, are you scared when he's in the middle of a shootout or like a chase scene with that? Th- those, those were little touches throughout the film that I was like, mm, okay, it didn't quite, it doesn't sound as good as you think it does. Well, and also I'm, uh, I'm mapping it out right now. Just, just one other logistical detail that as a local, it bugged me. So from the St. Charles police station, 
to the part of Munger Road uh, where that house would have been is about 6.5 miles. So we're expected to believe the deputy was crawling in a tunnel for 6.5 miles underground? Yes. <laughs> uh, no, yes, and then realistically, no. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a, a fun little geo mapping because, again, I would not have that kind of context. So that, yeah. that, that seems like a very, yeah, that seems like a very far way for uh, the deputy to get all the way over there. And he's just like, bust through the brick wall. And I'm just like, what did he bust through the brick wall with? Was he just pounding against it? Well, and then one other little context just for the locals here, uh, the scariest part of Munger Road they left off because when you're turning off Powis Road to get to 29 to go over to Munger, there's a hill that, I mean, it's it's like the hills in Silver Lake uh, where it's just so steep that you don't think your car is possibly going to be able to stop at the bottom of it. And one time when I was in high school and took a group of friends there, I mean, every girl in the back seat was screaming her head off going down that hill. It was much scarier than actually being on the track. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah, they should have put that in. So there we go. Nicholas Smith, if you're listening, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't, your next movie, your Munger Road sequel, should just be about people going up and down that hill. There it is. <laughs> 90 minutes. To be continued. Then I was like, this, this is the resolution I was looking for. If that was the resolution, if that was a, we figured it out. We just go drive up and down this incredibly steep cliff. Yeah, I'd be fine with it. So normally at the end of the podcast, we would ask um, kind of about why we think the film might not have garnered the audience that it deserved, where it goes from here. I think we touched on that a little bit, but let's just ask, let's, let's ask point blank um, because the to be continued is a sticking point. If we could, if we did have a million dollars, you know, between the three of us right now that we didn't need for life and living, would you give that to Nicholas Smith for a sequel? Would you give Nicholas Smith a million dollars from Unger Road 2? Donato, you're up first. I, now you put me on the spot because I I did say I want to see that million dollar uh, version of Munger Road where he gets to play with the paranormal and I mean uh, no 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 I'm not asking no. you but that's the thing is I'm not asking you do you want to see a million dollar movie of this I'm saying that no, continued yeah. delivers on do you want to see the million dollar sequel to the Munger Road that you got that you have some problems with I mean I'm because I'm trying to be an optimist and I'm trying to look forward I'm gonna say yes because that's exactly what he wanted to earn with this Munger Road. That's exactly what he was pushing forward to. And we are now set up in a place where he can actually play around with the fact that there is a supernatural force at play, possibly. There's also a missing kid. We know two are dead, but we know the other one might be the killer too. We also don't know if the cops are doing shitty dealings. I do want, I, I, I want what's missing from Munger Road. Yes, I want what's missing from that ending, and I want what that to-be-continued robs us of. Al, I think I know your answer. You, uh, you, are you funding the sequel? 100%. Uh, Munger Road to Brewster Creek. Uh, that's another <laughs> jab there for the locals. But I think there's a lot that could really be explored. Maybe, maybe it happens down the road, and the deputy is now the new chief and they're dealing with all this again but but i think fully delving into the paranormal side of it is far more interesting to me than any of the slasher stuff and i think we got a really interesting version of a movie here i would love to see what smith intended with the rest munger road detour to terror yeah for me i mean the, the weirdly the thing that keeps popping into my head when i think about this and it's not at all the same but it, it sort of feels a little the same you know the collector series has evolved and, and expanded in such an interesting way over the what is it three films 
that they've released? Uh, the, the third is not out yet, but the third was announced. And actually, I don't know when it will come out next. Good, good point. Okay. Um, so two, two and change, two and the promise of a third. I just sort of feel like because the way he describes the sequel is car chases and explosions, right? Like, I just, I don't know what that looks like in a, in a Munger Road universe that he's created here. And I'd be really, I'd be excited to see what a filmmaker could do if they're one of those people who just like ramps up the scale and scope with each subsequent feature. So yeah, I'm, I'm on board for another Munger Road. Um, I think that at the very bare minimum, they do a good job with making an urban legend actually seem kind of scary at times. That's not something that a lot of movies get right, I think. So yeah, give uh, give Nicholas Smith a million dollars. Uh, let's see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at the rest of the uh, critiques, I guess we'll call them the blurbs on Rotten Tomatoes from the other three negative reviews. Because like I said, four reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. The only fresh one is Roger Ebert, three negatives. And it is funny to see how polarizing it is because Ebert gives it three out of four. He's Chicago Sun-Times. And then you have Michael Phillips over at the Chicago Tribune. Obviously, all the Chicago-based uh, outlets are reviewing this. And he gives it a one out of four and goes, the debut feature from writer-director Nicholas Smith, who will surely go on to more compelling work. And the other two negatives both bring up the to-be-continued and the ending to the point where uh, Mike McGregahan said, I felt like I'd wasted almost an hour and a half of my life on a film that wasn't even going to bother giving me a complete story. And Friend of the show, Brad McCarg, said pretty much the same thing in his review. I was, I was going to say, friend of the show, Brad McCarg, is quoted on the Wikipedia going in the same route. So I... It's just that's going to be the polarizing uh, note of Munger Road. Can you deal with the t- with the end title credit that says to be continued? Can you can you read those words and get past them? Because a lot of people will not be able to. And I think that's why it's also been, quote unquote, forgotten, let's say. And I think, you know, I would be curious if somebody does, um, if one of the people that listens to the show does seek it out after the fact, let us know what your viewing experience is like knowing that that ending is coming. Because I think that that's, you know, the three of us collectively did not see that coming. We might've had an indication that the movie was going to wrap up more suddenly than we expected, but we did not realize that, that we were going to be hit with to be continued. So I am curious knowing that, that, the, that it is going to end with maybe the biggest indie cliffhanger you've ever seen in a horror film. If that changes your viewing experience, if just knowing that that is on the horizon for you makes it easier for you to, kind of roll with that punch when it comes up i'd be curious let us know let us know if you do it or better yet as soon as the deputy looks at the camera turn off the movie so you never even see the to be continued also not a bad idea all right well that is this episode of certified forgotten i want to thank al for coming on of course al if people want to listen to your podcast um see your thoughts on other stuff that you're doing in your life what are the preferred social media channels what's a what's a good way to follow you Oh, well, the podcast is Star Wars Loose Cannon. Uh, we're available everywhere you find podcasts and on all social media as Star Wars LC. Got some really exciting things planned uh, for the the next little bit going forward here. And then my personal stuff, uh, probably best way is on Twitter at AELO1. Mr. Donato, uh, how do your adoring fans remain connected and a big part of your life? As always, you can follow me at Donato Bomb on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find my work right now at places such as, well, I don't even know what's paying me these days. So we got this covered still for a few reviews. Uh, anywhere that will pay me, actually. I have some new outlets actually on the horizon, which is cool. So yeah, just uh, follow me on the tweets, follow me on the Instagrams, and I'll let you know where my work goes. 
promote some of the video stuff you're doing with Perry, correct? Isn't that something you want to shout out here? Actually, yes. Uh, shout out. I hope we're still doing it by the time this this episode posts. But yeah, we're also uh, me and Perry, Perry Nemiroff, who Al also knows. Uh, uh, and was just on an episode of Loose Cannon a couple weeks ago. So tune into that one, uh, talking about how Jedi training works. Yeah. Well, yeah. So me and Miss Nemirov are starting a uh, Friday. We're calling it the Merry Hour. You know, it's a play on Happy Hour, but with our names in the title. Fuck you. It's adorable. And um, we're just going to live stream every Friday, just kind of recap some big movie events, have some fun, and just try to deal with this uh, whole corona situation as best we can. God, I love being Matt Donato's professional hype man. I just forget the things I'm doing. I love that. I know. I'm, I'm trying to set all these things up, and I'm like, I don't know. Just follow me on social. I'll tweet it out. That's fine. My job, my job is to remind you of what you're doing so that other people will be able to enjoy it too. As for myself, you can follow me on social media. My Twitter handle is Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. I am not cut out for the video world, but we will be talking about upcoming episodes of Certified Forgotten, as well as some of the film criticism that I am doing as well to kind of, you know, I don't know, give you movies to watch in these troubled times. I said troubled times, everybody drink. Al, thanks so much for coming on board. Thanks so much for giving us probably one of our weirdly and most unexpectedly, one of our more divisive films of the podcast thus far. I had, I had a great time talking about this one with you. Yeah, this was fun. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, I don't know, does From Dust Till Dawn have five Rotten Tomato reviews? Could we? Could I come back and talk about that one? <laughs> uh, if it doesn't, I'm going to log seven right now. Yeah, it might be <laughs> only at 100. <laughs> yeah, that one just missed the cutoff, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. You are so close, so close. Mr. Donato, take us out, man. Demon fucking wind. Demon fucking wind.